Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 28. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before at the altar, and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown in prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Good morning. Good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 is about the law, how the law affects our lives. Uh, remember, in Romans chapter 7, it seems like the law seems to be any moral reflection of the character of God. It may be the written law, it may be the law given in the conscience of man. It may be uh, some moral law that the city makes. Um, had a question Wednesday night. Wednesday night, the question was, why will Gentiles or Jews be lost according to the law? What law do they have? Uh, my answer to that is threefold. First off, the rejection comes from the rejecting the knowledge of God that is learned from creation. That is learned from creation. It's general revelation in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. talks about what you learn from creation about God. Second, it's their action goes against contrary to the knowledge of the law written on their hearts. In other words, their conscience is a law to them. And when you break your conscience, you are breaking God's law. And then the third is when their actions go contrary to the conscience, which gives the warning of a moral sin that goes against God's word. God's word. So basically you have general revelation that you see. You have conscience that you've given to each one and special revelation through the Bible. Law is everywhere, thus sin is everywhere, 
Therefore, death is everywhere, the payment for breaking the law. So any rule that's made to reflect God's moral law is the law that we are talking about in chapter 7. Now, if you'll turn to Romans chapter 7, verse 7. Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. What is the purpose of the law? What is the purpose of the law? First question we have this morning. What is the purpose of the law? Notice the beginning. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? The moral law of God condemns sin. The moral law of God shows us what sin is and condemns you committing sin. Shows that you're rebelling against the character of God. The law is made to show you what sin is. In other words, let's turn it around. Can the law justify you? Can you be justified by the law? Well, the Bible says no. The law will not justify you. There's only one who can justify you, and that's God the Father. How about sanctify you? Can the law sanctify you? No, not even there. The law cannot sanctify you, cannot set you apart, cannot make you perfect before God. If you try to do what the law says, eventually what you'll end up doing is sinning more. You'll sin more. Chapters 3, 4, and 5 in Romans talked about how the law cannot save you. This is the law sin. Well, the moral law of God condemns our sin. That is the purpose of the law. Sin brings forth sin, reveals sin, but is not sin. When a person has the moral law of God, what you have is a reflection of God's character, and that character is what God wants you to do, and the law explains that. But guess what? With our sin nature, we cannot do what the law says. And we sin. And we sin. Sin is an act that misses God's target. It is something that misses the target. Sin is a state of being that is contrary to the nature of God. Contrary to the nature of God. Now second, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. What's the purpose of the law? Number two, the purpose of the law, the moral law of God, shows a person intimate lack of perfection. Now let me explain that answer. Intimate lack of perfection. What the law does is it shows you individually in an intimate way between you and God that you are not perfect. You sin. The law shows 
in a one-on-one way between you and God that you are not perfect. You cannot do what the law says to do. You cannot reflect the character of God. You cannot do what God wants you to do. You cannot please God by yourself. You cannot justify yourself. You cannot sanctify yourself. You cannot do anything that will please God. He says, may it never be. That's a strong, negative Greek word. May it never be. On the contrary, another strong no. In case you didn't understand the first no, he gives you another no. You ever have that when your mom says, no, no, no. Okay? That's what Paul is saying here. May it never be. On the contrary, no way. God's moral law is holy and shows a person that he cannot connect with the perfection God wants you to be. You cannot do it on your own. You cannot do it. God's law, either through creation, conscience, or the written word, shows the standards of God's righteousness. And guess what? Next to God's righteousness, you and I are sinful. We break God's law. He goes on and says, I would not have come to know sin without the law. It may have been Paul's personal problem with coveting, or maybe he just picks it as an example, but God created people with a moral code, if you want to say that. Conscience, inside of you. You know what's right and what's wrong. And usually, we end up doing what's wrong. Even a believer, when he has the law, he can't help but try to do the sinful thing because he still has a sin nature. He can only remove sin and the temptation to sin by the intervening, interceding work of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1 Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus... You have the ability to withstand the temptation to sin and break God's moral law. But through the law, the the law reveals sin. Okay? Now, let's go on and talk about how Paul gives you a little example of how law creates more sin. He goes on. What are the consequences with the law at work in the world of sinners? Okay? If you have a world full of sinners with sin natures, you have the law of God, what happens? Notice the end of verse 7. For I would not have come to know about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. The law says, do not covet. I wouldn't have known it unless the law said so. Number one, the moral law of God teaches who God is. Teaches us who God is. God is not a God that covets something. God is completely content with himself and the Godhead. He is completely happy By himself, he does not lust and desire and want something that
that belongs to you. He's completely content. For I would have not known about coveting. Coveting is having a strong desire for something you do not have that somebody else has. Somebody has something and you want it and you lust after it, you desire it, you covet it, that is when we break the command. For instance, Mark chapter 4, verse 19, is talking about the parable of the sower and the seed. You remember that one? But the worries of the world, when the the seed is sown among the weeds, remember this one? The worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires, that's the same word used here, the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. In other words, the seed will not grow when you desire something else, when you covet something else. It won't allow you to grow. The law says do not lust. Do not desire something someone else has. The reaction to, on the sin nature is creating greater lust. Okay? Your sin nature naturally wants something you do not have. <laughs> the law says do not lust after other things. And guess what happens? You lust more. You lust more. When you cannot get what you want, you think about it more. I told you about how I was looking for a new car and I wanted to buy a Suburban. How every time I drove down the street, there's like 19 Suburbans driving the other way. Because my mind was set on buying a Suburban. When you lust for something, you end up seeing it, wanting it, and desiring it more. It becomes an uncontrollable passion, an uncontrollable desire, an uncontrollable lust. The sinner's heart gets weird delight from doing what is moral, what the moral law of God says is wrong and evil. Your sinful desire wants to do it. The law comes in and says there's a standard outside of us, above us, namely God, and he reveals his will and the commands, the moral commands of God, and we don't naturally want to do what God says to do. We want to do the opposite. Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. Jesus is talking about this, and he's preaching about it, and he preaches a sermon on the mount, and he says in verse 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus goes beyond the law in the Old Testament. The law in the Old Testament says you'll get uh, taken out by your neighbors and stoned if you have relationship with somebody who's not your wife. (laughs) Jesus goes, well, that's good, but it's worse than that. If you think about it in your heart, you just as good as done it. You lust for something, it's just as if you've done it. And your friends should take you outside, get a boulder, and throw it at you. With lust, 
The desire and the deed are not identical according to Jesus, but the judgment for the thought and the deed are the same. Both of them do not stand up to the moral character of God. You cannot do the moral character of God. You cannot keep it. You cannot do it. You will not last a whole day trying to do things that please God. It won't work. God here opposes all unrighteous desires. Look at verse 8. Chapter 7, verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity through the command, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. What are the consequences that the law is at work in the world with sinners? Number two. The first part of that verse, taking opportunity. But sin, taking opportunity. The moral law of God and the sin nature will produce, guess what? More sin. It will produce more sin. When you have a sin nature that wants sinful things, you tell it the rules, don't do this, don't do that, do this, do this. Those sin natures will end up producing more sin. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with sin. Every person has a sin nature, must do the sinful action that the law says not to do. Your sin nature automatically tries to do what is anti-God. It's like the end of a magnet. You try to touch the two magnets together at the wrong ends. You know how it pushes it apart? That's how you are with your sin nature and the character of God. You push apart. A hundred percent of sin's power is not available to you until you understand what the law says not to do. When the law says not to do it, you therefore then all of a sudden by your sin nature are using sin as the maximum 100%. (laughs) And actually it gets worse. When your sin gets your sin nature and you learn what not to covet, and then your sin nature takes over and you start thinking about coveting things, you have sinful passions from last week, remember that? Sinful passions, and those sinful passions cause you to want sinful actions. So, technically, you are doomed if you have a sin nature. You cannot, 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 cannot keep the law of God. You cannot live like God wants you to live. You cannot live by the golden rule. You cannot live by the Ten Commandments. You cannot live by the morals of God. You can't be a good person. Because your sin nature is anti-God. Notice what it says. It'll take opportunity through the law, through the commandment. Literally, it's a starting point, a a jumping place, the beginning of a race. The beginning of the race is where the law meets your sin nature. And you begin down a road of doing more sinful things. You produce in me coveting of every kind. Of every kind. I like that. Every is our Greek word pan. It's talking about all, all, all means all. All kinds of sin happens 
with your sin nature and the rules of what to do and what not to do. Your sin nature, everything that is not allowed becomes very desirable. Very desirable. An uh, American author, I won't tell you who, American author wrote that if a mule, if a mule, if a donkey thinks he knows what you want him to do, the donkey will do just the opposite. Get that? If a mule thinks he knows what you want him to do, the mule will do just the opposite. Now, listen, I am not calling you a donkey. I am not calling you a donkey. He is calling you a donkey. Okay? He's the one saying it. I am not calling you a donkey. But you'll act just like a donkey. Because you will think you know what God wants you to do. And you will do the opposite. Apart from the law, sin is dead. The law is weak without the, excuse me, the sin nature is weak without the law. But you tell the law to do something, sin nature becomes more sinful. Now, if we stopped here, the sermon would be a real downer. But we're going to stop here. We're going to talk about how your heart can be changed. Because somehow you've got to change your heart so you do what's pleasing to God. Here you go. A sinner's heart is the starting point for sin to grow. A believer's heart is the starting point for righteousness to grow. What's the difference between a believer's heart and a sinner's heart? What's the difference? In the book of Romans, it brings up 15 times your heart. Paul thought it was important. Your heart. Turn to chapter 2 of Romans. Turn to chapter 2. We're going to stay in the book of Romans, but we're going to look at some verses that talk about your heart. Okay? Turn to Romans chapter 2, verse 29. I don't hear those pages clicking. Here we go. Romans chapter 2, verse 29. 29. Here we go. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcision is that which of the heart, by the spirit, not by the law, not by the letter. The letter there refers to the law. It doesn't happen by the law. You don't become circumcised. You don't become a believer by some outward action. You become a believer how? What's it say? How can a heart be changed? Number one. Your heart must be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who can change your heart. If he changes your heart, you'll notice the different relationship you have with your sin nature. You will act differently. Your heart changes by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, If you sit there and say, I'm going to change my heart. 
it won't happen. If you say, I'm going to try to be good this week, it won't happen. If you say, I'm going to obey the Ten Commandments, it won't happen. If you say whatever you want to say, you're going to reflect the character of God. Without the Holy Spirit, you cannot do it. It's impossible. Matter of fact, that's what the law tried to produce. You knowing that it's impossible to please God by keeping the law. Notice what it says. A circumcised heart is one that is separate from the world, separate from your sin nature, and dedicated to God. How? By the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit. To a people holy in the heart and in life, you will become changed in your relationship with sin. And you will live differently. Turn to chapter 6. In the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 17. Chapter 6, verse 17. We'll keep turning to your right. Romans chapter 6, verse 17. How can a person's heart be changed? Okay. Notice verse 17. It says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became, notice this word, obedient from the heart obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed. What teaching? In other words, number two, the heart must be changed by obedience to the truth. Obedience to the truth. You come to know the truth which you have in your lap in the Bible. You become obedient to that truth which you can only do by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, if the Holy Spirit controls your life, controls your heart, controls your actions, it will make you be obedient to the truth. And you will learn what the Bible says, and you will want to obey the truth, and you will be empowered by the Holy Spirit so you can do the truth. And keep and be obedient to the truth. Obedience for the believer is not an outward action. It begins with your heart. You desire to do it by your heart. The answer to every problem with a troubled heart is solved by belief in Jesus Christ. If your heart's not right, Jesus can solve that problem. The mind grows by taking in truth. The heart grows by giving out love to others. And you're obedient in the heart. Third, third, go to chapter 10, verse 10. Keep turning to the right. Romans 10, verse 10. We'll probably be there a couple weeks. Romans 10, verse 10. For what, for with the heart, a person believes. Okay, in other words, you are saved because of what your heart believes. Your heart either trusts the promises of God or it doesn't. Either you trust your sin nature or you don't. You trust your heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. In other words, what is connected to salvation is righteousness. Number three, the heart must be changed by obedience to righteousness. Obedience to righteousness. And the obedience to righteousness comes by being obedient to the truth. 
And obedience to the truth only comes by you being controlled by the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to do it on your own. It's impossible for you to be righteous this week. It's impossible for you to be righteous today without the Holy Spirit, without the truth. You cannot do it. You have to have all three so that you can be outwardly law-abiding according to the character of God. So, Paul puts an equal sign between salvation and righteousness. He does that throughout his book. You'll see it over and over again. Only the person who is righteous before God is a person who is saved. Salvation is the gospel message. Salvation is a process. Salvation is directly connected to the truth, the word of God. They're all connected. It's all connected to the Holy Spirit. So, first thing, you got to have the Holy Spirit to change your heart. you got to have the truth and the Holy Spirit to change your heart. Then you have to have righteousness, truth, and the Holy Spirit for your life to be different than a person controlled by their sin nature. Everybody with me? Grunt, groan, something? Okay, here you go. Now, what happens if we don't change your heart? What happens if we don't change your heart? What happens? Let's start in uh, chapter 4 of Romans, verse 15. Romans chapter 4, verse 15. What happens to a person who heart, whose heart does not change? If you say, I like my heart, I like my sin nature, I like my sin, I want to stay the way I am. What happens? Verse 15. For the law brings about, what's the word? Wrath. Wrath. Okay, the law brings about wrath. In other words, if you try to do good things this week, you'll be living under the law. And if you're living under the law, trying to do good things, you only have one thing ahead of you, and that's wrath. Now, wrath is not your mom getting mad at you. Wrath is not your wife getting mad at you. Wrath is not your pastor getting mad at you. Wrath is God being angry with you. Wrath, present tense. You every day, when you live under the law, try to good, do good things, you are getting more and more wrath. More and more wrath is produced by keeping the law. The law brings wrath because a person with a sin nature cannot keep the law, and you will end up sinning more. The law does not help anyone doesn't save you from wrath. The only thing that saves you from wrath is Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit. Well, let's turn left. Go to chapter 3, verse 20. Chapter 3, did I give you the verse 1 yet? Number 1, number 1, excuse me. A sinner's heart that rejects God's moral law will only lead to God's wrath. I didn't even give you the answer. God's moral law. A heart that rejects God's moral law. If you reject salvation, if you reject justification, 
If you reject sanctification, if you reject glorification, if you reject everything God offers to you, you are storing up wrath. You are going to have more and more wrath. If you think your mom's anger is bad, if you think your wife's anger is bad, if you think the pastor's anger is bad, you wait. You haven't seen anything yet. And one day you'll stand and you'll be judged by God. The sinner's heart that rejects God's moral law will lead only to God's wrath. Go to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 20. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Turn to the left this time. 3, verse 20. We're just taking these in order. 3, verse 20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. No flesh will be justified. No flesh will be justified in his sight. For though the law came, comes the knowledge of sin. Because of the law, the only thing you get is more sin. You do not get justification. Justification is where God declares you righteous. You are not declared righteous by keeping the law. Because you will break the law and you won't keep it. Being declared righteous will not be attained by a moral person trying to do something you think is good and pleasing to God. You won't do it. The law can show people only their sin and cannot justify them. The law reveals that all people deserves and await God's judgment because no person will be justified by the works of the law. The law will not provide the sinner with the ability to be saved. You cannot do it by doing something. You cannot be saved by doing something. You cannot be saved by keeping the golden rule. You cannot be saved by doing good things. You cannot be saved by doing righteous things. You cannot be saved by going to church. You can't be saved. You will have wrath ahead of you. Number two, let's put it this way. A sinner's heart that rejects God's moral law will only lead to non-justification. I couldn't think of a way of putting it. You won't get justification. You get non-justification. You'll be unjustified. There you go. That's probably better. Unjustified. You will be condemned. You will not be declared righteous by God. You will be unjustified. You will be declared a sinner. Go to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. Keep turning to the left. One more page. But because of your stubbornness and unrepented heart, verse 5, unrepented heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath, in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. What will happen to a person whose heart does not change? Number three, a sinner's heart that rejects God's moral law will only lead to the great white throne judgment. If you do not have your heart changed, you will stand before God, a great white throne judgment. Jesus Christ will be on the throne. The books will be open. And guess what? Your name will not be found in the books. A sinner's heart 
that rejects God's moral law will only lead to the great white throne judgment. If you break the law, you will head for a day of wrath. And it's not talking about wrath like we were looked at before. This is talking about the judgment day of wrath. The great white throne. Only the gospel of salvation by grace through faith brings deliverance from wrath. The only way out is by believing in Jesus Christ by faith. Trusting his work so you can be saved is the only way. Is the only way. Wrath is the unchanging reaction God has to sin. One sin is enough to encounter the wrath of God forever. Forever. Turn, keep turning to the left. Chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18. <clears throat> verse 18. What happens to a person whose heart does not change? Now, I think this verse describes our world today. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What happens to a person whose heart does not change? Number four, number four, a sinner's heart that rejects God's moral law will lead only to the suppression of the objective truth of God. People won't believe there is truth. You hear that in our, our, our world, don't you? There's no such thing as truth. Or truth is subjective. Or it's whatever you want it to be. It's unwritten. It's whatever you think. It's whatever you want. It's whatever you desire. And people change what truth is. Because they're suppressing truth and unrighteousness. A sinner's heart that rejects the moral law of God will only lead to the suppression of objective truth. You'll reject it. You'll replace it with something else that you like. You'll make some rules that you can obey. God's wrath is directed toward those who suppress the truth. They reject the knowledge they have. They reject the knowledge of God they have. They reject the written word of God. They reject the Bible. They reject the fact that there is absolutes. They reject it. Sin is always an assault upon truth. You know what basic truth is? Well, I'll sum it up this way. This is how I, I put it. The fundamental truth of God is that God is creator, God is judge, and God is redeemer. And those three things of truth, if you're just on a desert island, you just have those three things, you've got enough truth to believe in God. That God's the creator, that God is the judge, and God is the redeemer. And you accept that truth. Will I understand the purpose of the law in the lives of my non-believing friends and try to explain to them why God has given them moral laws? Why there is truth. You have to explain it to your non-believing friends in a simple way because they don't have a biblical knowledge that you have. You have to explain it to them slowly. And you have to share with them that there are, there's a purpose for God giving you a conscience, for God giving you creation, for God giving you 
the revelation that comes from the Bible. God gives you these things so that you can believe and trust in Jesus Christ. I used to live in California. I used to live in California. I used to live in California. And on my block, I had the biggest backyard on the block. I had the biggest backyard on the block. Okay? I'll describe my backyard to you. It was about 40 feet north and south. And it was about 20 feet east and west. Okay? Now, I know you farmers would just love having my backyard that I had in California. 40 feet by 20 feet. So it was a triangle, a rectangle. Okay? Beautiful backyard. I had one tree. Backyard. 40 feet by 20 feet. In my backyard, I had an enclosed patio. Enclosed patio. Glass patio. It was 10 feet by 10 feet. I had a backyard big enough so I could have a patio. I was set. I was the envy of all the people on my block. I was it. I was the happening backyard. I was the backyard that everybody wanted to have on my neighborhood. Okay? I had an enclosed patio. In that enclosed patio, I picked out a Dalmatian puppy for my kids. Now, that was the reason, okay? That was the excuse I gave. But I wanted a Dalmatian puppy. I went and picked out the Dalmatian puppy. He was the only puppy in the whole litter that had one blue eye and one brown eye. I called him Blue. Get that? Get that? Good? Hey, I called him Blue. I had a a doghouse. Guess what? It was white and had black spots on it. He and me, we had wonderful times together. We went on walks every day. Every day. Every day. He was my dog. He was my dog, and I put his doghouse in the patio 10 by 10. I had a glass doghouse outside his doghouse protecting him for the I had a heater in the doghouse underneath the doghouse I had a heater so when it got cold 65 degrees I would have the heater for my dog to stay warm okay in the winter time it's cold 65 degrees so he didn't know what to do he was shivering so I got him a little heater under his, under his doghouse so spring came my dog, Blue, had made a mess in the doghouse patio. So you know what I did? I took everything out of the patio, and I decided I was going to clean the patio. Now, one of the things I had in my garage was the most powerful <coughs> air blower you've ever seen. So I took my air blower into the patio to blow out the junk in the dog patio. And I turned on my air blower, and all of a sudden, it looked like one of, those, uh, one of those things you see at the store when you shake them. It snows. I blew, I blew the doghouse, and all of a sudden, I'm breathing in this stuff, 
and I'm seeing this stuff, and I can't see anything, and I'm blowing, and I got bigger mess than I had before I started. Okay? So guess what? I stopped using the blower. The blower is the law. The dirt in the patio is sin. And when I put the blower, the law, in action with my sin, I have a bigger sin. I have a bigger mess. A bigger disaster than when I started cleaning the patio. What I needed was the gospel, which would have been a vacuum that would have sucked up everything instead of a blower, which blew everything around. Because I thought the blower works on everything. I can do it in the patio. But it needed a vacuum. Some of you sitting here have been trying to use the blower to clean your patio life. And you don't realize what you're getting is more sin. More sin, more actively working. Because you're trying to do something that God says you cannot do. You cannot earn your way to heaven. You have to rely upon the gospel message where Jesus Christ does the work for you. You have to place your trust in the work of Jesus Christ. You trust him that his work is acceptable to God. And guess what he does? He comes in with the Holy Spirit and he cleans out your doghouse. And he makes it livable. Now, I don't know what your life is like if you would describe it as a mess or as a mess that got hit by a blower. But the way God wants you to live is by trusting Jesus Christ and having your life vacuumed out. So you have a relationship with God and life more abundant and free. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time in your word. I pray, Father, you would help us as we go through chapter 7, learning about the law. I pray, Father, that you help us understand that law, being obedient to the law, will not save us. It will only drive more into sin. Because of the sinful passions we have, because of the law and our sin nature, we will do more sinful things, and our world will get more blown up than it was before. I pray, Father, you help us to live this life according to how you want us to by trusting Jesus Christ for our salvation. Thank you, Father, for this time in your word. Work in our lives, Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us, Father, to clean out those corners that are still sinful. Help us, Father, to be righteous. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.